Hello and welcome to the Disney Animated Cannonball, a podcast where I, Talon Lee, he, him, and I, Fox Lee, she, her, watch our way through the entirety of the Disney Animated Canon movies, and it's finally gotten really good! (laughs) (laughs) This, um, not gonna lie, this may be the high point of the series for me. (laughs) 1996's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, I've been waiting for this one. And also kind of dreading it, because I know it's all downhill. <laughs> no, no, let's not think about it. Like that. Let's enjoy the high while we're here. <laughs> but before we go on about how great and happy we are, we have a structure, and I'm going to stick to it. So first up, we have the plot in 60 seconds. Oh, right. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, is, it, is it your turn? It's my turn. It's your turn. Yeah, yeah, I don't have to do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Count me in. Okay. Uh, well, I guess your time starts now. An elderly churchman commits a murder in the course of his work. Out of guilt, he raises the woman's deformed son to adulthood. The child named Quasimodo becomes the bell ringer of the Notre Dame Cathedral. Later, the churchman tries to arrest a young marginalized woman named Esmeralda for being too hot and too fun, and when she takes the sanctuary in the cathedral, a Quasimodo befriends her. A series of intrigues and manipulations result in Quasimodo, Esmeralda, and Phoebus, oh hi, he's here too, trying to arrange so everyone in the same place. Bad church dad introduces a lot of people to self-loathing thirst, and the word calumny before a battle around the burning cathedral that hits differently now. Quasimodo confronts bad dad, bad dad gets chucked into molten lead, probably not Quasimodo's fault, and Quasimodo doesn't get the girl, but that's okay. Hey, beautiful summary. (laughs) Um, I'm gonna be honest, I lost count. So, I'm gonna assume you did it in about the right amount of time. I'm sure I did. You can go back and check it and give yourself a prize if you want. Uh, yes, so, hey, uh, (laughs) I guess we should just put our cards on the table that we both really like this one. What, tell us about your existing relationship with Talon. Alright, okay, so this might be a little awkward, but I didn't see this movie in theatres in 1996. Uh, Several years later, I was dating a girl, and she mentioned that it was her favourite Disney movie or something to that effect, and she even had it on VHS. So one afternoon, uh, basically, as much as it could be a date, I came around and we watched The Hunchback of Notre Dame on VHS on a 4 by 3 aspect ratio uh, movie, and I'd never seen it before, and it hit pretty hard, and I really liked it. And some details, yada, 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 and now I'm doing a podcast with her about it. Uh, she sounds neat. <laughs> what about you? What's your pre-existing relationship with this movie? Well, the year is 1996. Uh, Young Fox is... 13, over 13 years old, uh, and uh, despite having been fairly dedicated to religion in her life thus far, is currently going through perhaps inevitable phase of deciding that organized religion just isn't for her. Most people in, in power in religious structures just take advantage of other people and, you know, gradually drifting away from the orthodox path and finding a faith within herself. Uh, towards a god in whom she still believes, uh, despite being a friendless loser. Um, and then this came out! Ah, <laughs> uh, it's... Oh, my voice is trembling a little bit! <laughs> uh, this, this movie means everything to me. It hit me at exactly the right time and mode. Uh, it was... It's so fucking grown up for a Disney movie. 
Which is all I ever wanted from my cartoons, to take me seriously. Oh boy! Show me beautiful things that would make me cry and love them. Uh, and and the fact that it basically railed against corrupt religion uh, was was just a huge fucking bonus. I think I talked about how the uh, uh, I did not see movies in theaters very often because who can afford to see a fucking movie in a cinema? But uh, this showed for a number of weeks at a cinema that was on my school bus route home, who also happened to do shopper docket oh. half price tickets. So if I wrangled a friend, I could see it for $2. Oh, very which nice. Which is huge. Yeah. Nobody does movies for that price the, back then. The buying power of $2 back then, you are looking at, like, a pair of candy bars. Yeah, not even. Like, uh, yeah. I recall a Mars bar being, like, $1.20 at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So I I saw this. I've never seen in cinemas as many times as this. <laughs> And then later on, I saw it a couple more times when we were on holidays, and there was like, I think Deep Impact was the main feature, and then <laughs> it was like, what do we want to do now? And I was like, I'm going to stay here, because I'll pass off. Bye, everyone! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to file that away under this one note card I have, uh, though the, the way I phrased it on this card is just, bisexuality intensifies. <laughs> Now, I think that doing the double take on this would be a little bit weird, because I think the last time either of us saw this was last year? Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Well, this is, this is like Pocahontas for me. There's nothing in this movie that I've noticed on this watch through that I haven't seen. And that, that, there's nothing new here. Mm -hmm. This is a movie I could recite the better part of. I can certainly do every song. The movie knows your name. <laughs> oh, that's so pretty. <laughs> With that in mind, then. Let us sidle quickly to the Yikes Door slash product of its time. And I would like to say up front, this movie uses the word gypsy. It uses it quite a lot. I am not comfortable with being the person to unpack whether or not that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, to the best of my understanding, and I will add a note here that until 2013, I didn't know gypsy was a slur under any circumstance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to my understanding, and based on the fact that it doesn't come with the product of its time warning, it doesn't note tobacco usage. Yeah. <laughs> Which is for a hot three seconds in a joke scene. But, uh, it's, I do believe it's used in an appropriate context. But, once again, I recognize that's not for me to actually say, so I'm from here on out going to avoid saying it myself at the very least. Yeah. And in the same way that we gave uh, cross-race casting for a more privileged group a bit of a bollocking previously, Demi Moore playing a, a black lady. That is lady, a real shame, yeah. It, yeah it's, it's just a bummer. The voice acting in this is superb mm -hmm. on all fronts, but I'm sure somebody who didn't have star power but was of an appropriate racial extraction could have done just as superb. Yeah. Now, one other thing I would like to point out that is very of its time, and not necessarily yikes, is Jason Alexander's Gargoyle. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Hugo's kind of a... He's so strange. <laughs> he, he... I mean, he's the genie for this film, Exactly. Right? He is an iteration on the out-of-context character, like Genie and Timon and Pumbaa, and I'm, I'm not saying that, like... like I, he is, to me, the low light of the movie. I don't like him. But I'm not trying to just sit here going, hey, that character I like sucks because he's just a copy of Genie and Pumba. No, he it's other reasons. Go on. I will say this. 
Uh, Timon and Pumbaa don't really fill fill that space because The Lion King is a movie out of time, mm-hmm. and therefore there doesn't need to be a character who can make hip modern references because everyone can. The Lion King is just a movie where everyone can. I can't think of anyone else who, for example, references Luau's. Okay, they do a little <laughs> more out of place referencing, but like everyone is allowed to say like gross. Oh, or it's degrees here. Alright, sure, lions don't speak English. <laughs> You're right, but it's not, I, I'm just saying in Lion King it's not pronounced, and that's part of why that was, well, part of why that movie manages to be kind of weirdly timeless while still being extremely 90s. But on the other hand, th- that movie does have a bunch of references to uh, reasonably modern culture of like 15 years earlier than it, which is all, yeah, hey parents, like, lovely bunch of coconuts and references to In the Heat of the Night. Yeah, Zazu gets to think it's a small world. How's that for me? Yeah, and, and those things... Everyone gets to do it a bit. Yeah, and the thing that we now kind of have a better handle on, I think, is that that dates stuff in a really awkward way. Uh, not that they ever stopped doing that. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean, there's, it's just a case of whether or not you get away with it. Like, no one's down on Robin Genie for being full of pop culture mm-hmm. references, but I, that's a hard act to follow. A lot of people tried. Mm. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Hugo is kind of obnoxious. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jason Alexander saying dumb shit behind the scenes doesn't more. Oh, yeah, I'll go there. I've got that in my notes. Um, <laughs> who, the actor who found it appropriate to refer to Pocahontas says, Pokey? Yeah, fuck that guy. The, uh, the other thing that would be in the Yikes store is just, it, it, it's awkward to admit it, but Esmeralda is just unreasonably too hot. Like, there is one dominant woman character in this narrative, and she's everything. <laughs> like <laughs> I touched upon this in uh, Aladdin and again in Pocahontas, uh, where I talked about how the, the, lead, uh, the lead women from this era of Disney are fucking phenomenal. Yeah. And unlike anything they've done in the past, and gorgeous and powerful and super cool, and it's really unfortunate that it correlates directly with them doing not white princesses. Yeah. For, like, the first time ever. Yeah. Like, uh, Esmeralda especially. Like, look how square her jaw is. Yeah. You'd never have drawn one of their precious little baby doll white princesses like that. And it tears me up that she is at once so much better than them. And also, like, well, we all know that you're racializing this character design. And that's yeah. why she's so much she's and and also she is Mm. like there there is going to be some controversy about this later on but she is definitely a more sexual character oh absolutely and and also she's very physically competent and for all that the movie kind of wants to have this message of like the uh the underclass the, the marginalized people of this underclass are unfairly treated no, she is actually also a witch and a thief, and, like, she is capable- same thing with, like, you know- hey, she has a skill set. Yes. We have never seen her steal anything, we have never seen her cast any spells. Doesn't she lift something off Frollo? No, you the movie was on ten minutes ago, I if I can't so. give you a specific example, that's on me. I did have it in my head that she was actually capable of doing a lift, but I don't know why. Maybe it's in the sequels. Maybe it's because <laughs> she seems super competent, and that mm. would be a useful skill. But also she is able, like, don't get me wrong, I'm absolutely no doubt that Clopin and a probably a very dedicated team of other <laughs> engineer are, sorry, engineers are on hand to help with that. But she does do magic. Well, yeah, but she does <laughs> stage magic. She doesn't do witchcraft. 
And stage magic <laughs> is impressive, Fox, is it my is, point. <laughs> but it's also not heresy, is my point. Oh! Well, okay. <laughs> I mean, it is, but also heresy is hot. So. Yeah, and, and, like, the Catholics of this time, well, they could do with some heresying. But That's part yeah. of the joy of this, like, you know, where she does, like, a stage trick and follows, like, witchcraft, and he's actively horrified by it. Like, which was- You're such a little baby. Which is a real thing. Um, it's really, yeah. It's, it's not at all inaccurate. Th- this is- this isn't really a product of its time. This is a product of the time of the novel's setting at this point. But you may notice that they use the term juggler, right? Um, when, when they're describing the, the, the Court of Fools. Oh, there'll be jugglers down there. And the thing is, that's actually a thing that gets mentioned. Of like, ooh, the Festival of Fools or the Court of Miracles, that kind of thing. They'll have jugglers. Because that's what they used to call people who could do stage magic. I was trying to remember where it was referenced. Like I said, this movie is a crack in my life. <laughs> but you're, when they're talking about the Feast of Fools, they do mention jugglers. Yeah, and it's um, it's just that not Fraser Crane Gargoyle mentions it. Yeah, juggler is a category of people that were regarded for a time as dangerous because they were thieves. Yeah, but also magicians were very adamant to say, look, we're not magicians, we're not doing magic, we're not conjurers or sorcerers, because those things involve actual magic. Trust me, all I'm doing is fooling you. And that that was a very weird time. And also they tended to hang around criminals, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff there. That, that one has swung fantastically. Mm. Like the, the sage magician uh, uh, encouraging the the supernatural belief. Like, yeah. you know, if you switch over to, say, Victorian England, like, ooh, yes, no, I can definitely do the dark arts. Yeah. Nowadays, magicians famous in the skeptic community. Bonus, probably the world's most successful magician in the world right now is technically a juggler. He considers that his primary skill set. <laughs> I mean, I sort of go with one another since it's about dexterity and showmanship. Timing. Anyway, you don't need to hear me bang on about how important this stuff was. <laughs> I just wanted to make an, an interesting tidbit that the idea of who was dangerous at that point in time did actually include, in the novels period, jugglers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Whereas now, ooh, he juggles is usually a sign that, oh, he's a bit of a dork. <laughs> it's not unrelated. Anyway, I guess my point with um the whole she's too much is not so much that Esmeralda should be any less of an amazing badass or any less pretty or any less cool. It's just maybe it would be nice if a second woman could do that as well. <laughs> It would be nice if there wasn't a clear dividing line between the precious princesses and the capable princesses. You gotta, you know how they do those group shots of all of the different Disney princesses hanging out together? Like, either Esmeralda has everyone's earrings already, or she is teaching them some shit. (laughs) Anyway, I adore her, obviously. Yeah, but that's all I really had for the Yikes store, because... Like, once you accept the whole, this thing is ankle deep in a slur, it does actually do a pretty decent job. Yeah, this is not a disrespectful, I don't think. Well, it's it's respectful within the parameters of people who aren't sure how to be respectful, right? Like, it could well be that someone who's in the affected group could come to us and say, just so you know, that whole thing about blind people, uh, pretend, you know, you know, sighted people pretending to be blind, that's a terrible, terrible thing to imply about uh, well, our community. Yeah, okay, and like. That. Okay, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, we do know that. And you're right, that is a whole second of a song that's, uh, mm. like, maybe not cool, but... Which is a shame, because I really like that song, and I really like the way it touches on 
Another historical thing, which was that magicians and thieves and scoundrel guilds were often built out of, yeah, we're going to take care of disabled people. And one of the side effects of that is that they didn't need to have fake uh, limbless people or fake blind people doing their lookout jobs or stuff like that. They just got real ones and kept them fed. Anyway, <laughs> I am way too invested in the art of old thievery. <laughs> The last four movies we have watched, which are absolutely the uh, glory time of the Disney Renaissance. Mm. Well, okay, last last five skipping Rescuers Down Under. This season, minus Rescuers Down Under. Okay, I guess what I'm saying is it's definitely less, less yikesy than the last three things. Yeah, of, of all of the stuff we've watched for this season, this is the one that I'm the least embarrassed of. And that includes Lion King, which isn't yikesy for the normal, it's just yikesy because... Kings are great, ages very badly. Yeah. Anywho, let's talk about this movie. <laughs> so, if you've nothing to add for the Yikes store... Nope, I think we're done with it. Clunk! I'd like to talk about the animation and making. Ooh, I'm down for that. Mm. Uh, first up, the music pairing was Mencken and Schwartz, who are the ones who worked on Pocahontas. Mm, I love that work. I love every minute of this fucking soundtrack. Oh, God, it's good. I like everything in the soundtrack of this movie minus three minutes and 15 seconds. Okay, yeah, all right. A Guy Like You is not a great song. Yeah, and it's not even, like, there are multiple Disney movies where it would be the best song. Don't know if I can agree with that. Snow White. <laughs> if you transplanted Guy Like You to Snow uh, White, okay. it would stomp yeah. on the songs from there. But yeah, the point, no, you really can't. But my point is that I have definitely put up with worse. All right, all right, all right. Acknowledged. But I'd rather listen to that than anything in the Pooh movie. But the standards of this movie's soundtrack are stratospheric. <laughs> oh, there is, uh, for anyone who's not familiar with this, uh, because this story is essentially a religious one, we have a full fucking choir belting the shit out of backing vocals. Every number. Glorious. Uh, Tony J has a voice made out of molten gold. Yeah. Uh, Holy crap. And I mean that in the sense that also it might kill you. Uh, they also, for key characters in this movie, they did not turn to conventional actors. They turned to theater actors. Well, that's why we have Tom Hulse. Tom Hulse as, as, as Quasimodo. Lady, right, he's a musical theater guy. Uh-huh. And we have Paul Candle for Clopin. Oh, he's Broadway as well. Oh, I yes. wondered about that, because, like, him... He has, like, a comedy character role in this, but uh, he within that character voice, he performs some amazing vocals, especially going hard as fuck on that high note. Now, unless I'm misreading the Tony's website, Paul Kandel has been uh, nominated for a Tony six times. <laughs> Which, I don't know if that's like, oh man, you couldn't win one of those times, or anything like that, but... uh. You don't get nominated six times for being shit. No, I'm, I'm going to assume that's a good number. I don't know a lot about musical theater. I know about Me animated. Either. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm going to assume that's good. It sounds good. Sounds sounds great. Also, the secondary cast includes a bunch of people who are themselves capable of singing. Uh, Demi Moore had a voice double. Yeah, Heidi Moore and her. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but also David Ogden Steers. David Ogden Steers is, is uh, <sighs> returning. Uh, perennial Disney voice actor at this point, David Ogden-Steers as the Archdeacon. It's so hard for me to listen to him doing anything musical without remembering the end of M.A.S.H. 
and this very <laughs> sad man breaking a record. Well, especially in this character, yeah. because the, the voice he does for the Archdeacon is so uh, gentle and emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the same quality as, as Quasimodo's voice, basically. Tom Hulse is somehow this incredible combination of being able to belt and also do that gently yeah. somehow. Like, how do you... Do- I don't know. The man's magical. If you've ever seen Tom Hulse, uh, he has a... Like, this is not me, like... You know, phrenologically speaking, but you know how, for example, a very large man can often get a much louder and bassier voice. Uh, Tom Hulse, he does, I've seen one photo of the man, he does not seem to be particularly massive, but he has a very broad chest. So it would not surprise me if this is something that he learned he was good at when he was young and has never stopped trying to be better at it. I mean, it's one thing to learn to use your voice to the extent of its power, but it's another to have the amount of control that you can hold back so delicately, uh, as, as Quasimodo does at, at the very beginning of Out There and yeah. uh, before, In Heaven's Light. Like, <laughs> yeah. Such a feather gentle falsetto. Oh my god. But you never get that fuzziness when he's speaking feather, when he, when he does that feathered gentle tone. The diction doesn't suffer. No, oh, dude's pro. Still very clear. And hey, shock and horror, he's really good. But like, and I think that's part of why this movie so rings to me in a way that a lot of other stuff, even from, even like the best stuff of the previous iterations was, because there was always stuff in other movies where I could point at and go, well, this bit was a bit weak. Whereas in this movie, it's like every single person who was working on this is like at the apex of their power. <laughs> Even Jason Alexander. Yeah. Which, I mean, you know, on that note, shout-outs to Mary Kay Bergman, I guess. Yes, once again, um, the uh, voice of Jolly. <laughs> Not Frank Welker. Well, on that note, <laughs> we have once again a roundup of the incidentals and uh, secondary characters that people should recognize. Horses? Uh, I don't have the horse name. Frank Welker is the baby bird. Oh, of course, I forgot. I was trying to think of what other animal noises we get in this movie that aren't goats. Uh, we also have, as random guards, the names of the actors who do that include... I'm sure I heard a Jim Cummings. You heard a Jim Cummings, you yeah. did. But you also heard two names that I don't think are going to land for you quite as hard. Corey Burton? No. And Bill Fagabake. Now, I don't know how to pronounce Bill Fagabake's surname. Apologies be- in advance. Because I mostly know him as Patrick Starr from SpongeBob SquarePants. Wait, the, hang on. His actual name is Patrick Starr? The actor? No, sorry. I mean, the character Patrick from SpongeBob Square. <laughs> his actual name is Patrick Starr? I think Patrick Starr's name is Patrick Starr. I, I'm not a SpongeBob generation person, no. so I could be wrong, but I thought that Patrick the Starfish's name was Patrick Starr. This could be just like how someone's gotten me to convince that the surname of the main character of Kingdom Hearts is Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, Kingdom Hearts. Sorry, Kingdom Hearts and Riku Kingdom Hearts, which indicates that they're married. Oh, they're married. Yeah. Uh, but also, uh, Corey Burton is the voice of Ansem the Wise from oh, Kingdom Hearts. I see. see how I looped us Baron back on that one? No. Yeah. Now let's escape before this loop goes any further. Uh, one final note on the voice acting crew that I think is just funny and nice: uh, the old creepy dude who gets knocked out of various imprisonments into another imprisonment. Ah, oh, yes. That's Gary Trousdale. Not Jafar. Oh, the, he's the director? He's the director? Yeah. He's also the director of uh, Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, no, he's, this is not his first or his last Disney job. Yeah. Um, also, 
Mary Wicks, that's it, sorry. Yeah, who... I believe she also passed away during production, didn't she? Yeah, 1995. Okay, so... She died oh, no, before the movie came out. No, that probably was during production. Yeah, that's, that's, that's why I always confuse her with uh, Mary Kay that passed mm-hmm. away almost the exact same time. Yeah. Anyway, so that's a bummer. She did a great job, too. She's got this real sort of, you know, friendly granny energy mm-hmm. with occasional weird hot granny energy. She was 85 when she passed away, too, Christ. so, like... Alright, well, I feel less bad for her then, because 85 is a good score. Which, I want to remind you, isn't the oldest voice actor we've had in a Disney movie, and the other one is still alive at this point. <laughs> no, was it... A the Aristocats lawyer. Voice who, oh, that's right, yeah. Who kept acting till he was 107. Right. Anyway. Working at any job until you're 107 is wild. It's got to be something you love doing. Uh, anyway, I think therefore we've covered everyone in the book. Oh, right, right, except I should possibly also add, uh, to this long list of, oh my god, the songs are, it is, also, they were wise enough to decide that Kevin Klein should not sing. Yeah! Because he's not really a singer. He is perfectly decent. Eh? By my standards. Look. Which is to say he shouldn't show up singing in this movie where everyone is, again, at the apex of their power. We're going to do a little thought experiment here. <laughs> what we're going to think about is he was a a main character in a beloved voice role in Road to El Dorado, the DreamWorks movie. Yep. And how many songs did they sing? Two, I thought. They sung one song. They do the It's Tough to Be a God song. And the rest of the time, they let Elton John sing. I, fair. It's been a while since I've heard it. I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah, He's, no. The man's not a singer. It was the right choice. Yeah. There was a song for Phoebus. Mm-hmm. Or rather, there was a song for Esmeralda and Phoebus. Uh, that didn't pan out. Yeah, well, that's And I'm good. sort of glad it didn't. I don't know how it would have worked in this. Well, the other thing is, like, they could have voice doubled him. They voice doubled Demi Moore. That wasn't a problem. It's true, it's true, it's true. And they, they voiced double Aladdin, for fuck's sake. Like, <laughs> I'm still surprised to learn that. Yeah. That was a really invisible one. They voiced double Robin Williams, so... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, point is that the the nature of... Like, it, it's one thing to sit here and go, well, I'm glad they didn't do this thing that would clearly have been bad. They would have found a way to make it work. But I'm glad that they didn't include a Phoebus Esmeralda song because it doesn't need it. It already has one song more than it needs. Everything else... <laughs> is bangers it is nothing like probably once you take away a guy like you the next worst song is the court of miracles probably ah the next worst song is top Turf. yeah that's fun it needs to be there absolutely yeah. and like if that i mean now i'm just sort of leaning into talking about the, the weirdness of this movie and how odd in tone it is for a company selling toys to children but I mean, that's why it always stands out as a real definitive Renaissance movie for me. Yeah. This was, tri- this did everything it could to be an art uh-huh. Disney movie. Yeah. This was not fucking about. And watching the the marketing reach for kid appeal, like, you know, uh, look at the funny gargoyles. Uh, look at all the flag banners. Look, it's festival time. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what I'm here for, bitch. This movie got real dark real quick. It did, and it got a lot of shit for that. Like, in the opening 30 seconds. (laughs) 
You, you do see a woman die on screen in, in the opening number. Yeah, and that happens in The Fox and the Hound too, but she's a fox. Uh, crucially, you do not see her die on screen. Yeah, good point. She runs off over the hills and there's a gunshot. She ran. Quasimodo's mother gets kicked in the head and it smashes her skull on the steps of Notre Dame. Yeah. Whew. See there, the innocent blood he has spilt. <laughs> God. I just want to hear those songs again. Like, I'm just sitting here thinking, <laughs> man, those... <laughs> Thank you for the bangers. It, it's such a good song. Su- uh, such a good movie musically. This is also one of the... You, you remember how I mentioned The Lion King was the first CD I ever acquired? Uh, this was a close follow-up, and I cannonballed this soundtrack for years of my life when I would go to bed, and I would uh, block out my own animated movies to the instrumental numbers. Oh, Yes. And I would belt the vocal numbers in the shed at home when everyone else was inside and I was out on the computer. Oh, this is a, th- a thing the families used to where you would have one computer per household and it was in like a special, uh, mm-hmm. so it wouldn't bother anyone else. Yeah. The, uh, the overall grand thesis of this movie, as much as I have one, is impossible. It, this movie... This movie is actually telling the story it wants to tell. There's no screamingly obvious, but capitalism fucks this up. This movie is one of the purest types of movies of of its entire genre. It's so excellent at being itself that I don't want to sit here and go, did you notice the way that it brings up corruption in the church? Like, fuck off! You can just watch the movie and get that! This movie is very upfront about its themes and for once it doesn't thematically fail on any of them. I've seen people uh, complain about it as a, a softening of the original novel. Don't care! Because Frollo's not, because Frollo is not a priest anymore, now he's the Minister of Justice or whatever, but as far as I'm concerned that just means that we're now slagging off priests and cops, <laughs> which is great! <laughs> Perfect! Love it! It got better! <laughs> Uh, I'm also of the understanding that this is probably the the only film version where Cosimodo is particularly sympathetic. Like, the other versions of him tend to be sort of more, you know, King Kong movie monster style. Yeah. Whereas this one is like, he's, he's a sweet boy. Yeah. I will protect this good boy. And the fact that it culminates not with him getting a kiss from Esmeralda, but rather acceptance from a child is, like, a huge thing. Yeah, God, it's so grown up. Imagine a Disney movie where the main character liking a girl doesn't mean she's romantically... She's never romantically interested in him, and it's so refreshing. Like, you you feel the heartbreak when he realizes that she's totally into the hot guy instead. I mean, you know, who is legitimately a hero and suffers for his heroism, and this movie may have given me some other kinks, but that's not important. The... That you you certainly sympathize with his perspective, but you are given to immediately understand that no, it has to be okay for her never to have been romantically interested in because that's her prerogative. You don't get rescue points. Yeah, that you can cash in for love. And uh, I I just like this movie a lot. I like the way this movie doesn't pretend he's not ugly. I like the way this movie never forgets that he is fearsome. Cozzy's design is a masterwork of of character design, because he is ugly. He's really ugly. They didn't pretend. They didn't soften this blow. They just also charming and lovely. Yeah. And showed us how fucking innocent it's 
in in a way that comes through despite putting that appearance on him. It's just fucking brilliant. I love it. Like, I'm just going to turn off my devices because they're just all going off, apparently. We're so close. (laughs) (laughs) So close to what? Being done. I don't... It's just like... Like, I'm almost out of fucking notes. (laughs) Do you remember Snow White? Where I'm like, I'm going to have like 10 minutes worth of shit to say about this fucking movie. And you're like, well... Well, 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 well. I promise I am not doing that. Uh, and, and, and yeah, I love the fact that they remember that he's also supposed to be super fucking strong and it comes up again and again. <laughs> the fucking gravestone. I love his banter with Phoebus. It's delightful. The chains. The sorry, no you're not is, is still one of my favorite lines ever. But yeah, the chains, oh my god. The entire sanctuary scene. It's just fucking incredible. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, we haven't talked about how this movie looks yet. This movie is fucking gorgeous. This is this Paris is beautiful. This cathedral is magnificent. The there is an artistry here in uh, lighting and framing that I mean, okay. On one hand, it's playing off the easiest imagery in Western culture, like. Heaven good, hell bad, heaven up, hell down. I, you know, it's it's basic shit, but it's used to its fullest here. And it's so easy to connect with, even if you are a child. It's also got, as far as central characters go, one that is the most incredibly easy to make look good and makes everyone else look good, <laughs> which is the Cathedral Notre Dame. They did extremely treat the cathedral as a character. This is something that the production talks about a lot. how it, it uses uh, mostly, like, colour and lighting and, and framing and, you know, the dimensions of it shrink and grow relative to characters and, you know, just occasionally bits of it will animate so they can judge you more effectively. <laughs> Imagine if God fucking threw your bad dad into a pit of molten lead. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be so mad at God if that had been the case. Like, if that was the kind of thing God did... <laughs> that sounds pretty fucking righteous. But yeah, the... The the entire, the color palette for the movie, the fact that it comes in like four different distinct color tones for the whole movie. Like, and you can map it to like really rudimentary color theory of like the opening is yellow, the next stage is green, the next stage is red, and the, the final stage is dark red. Like, 
I'm I'm not pointing out anything particularly yep. brilliant there. That is not difficult. And by the way, if you hadn't noticed that kind of thing, check Star Wars. They do the exact same thing. And if Star Wars is doing it, it's probably not very complicated. <laughs> it is is it is polished the fuck out. Oh, it's not God, yeah. new. It's just everything is glorious with couple of small notable exceptions, which I will highlight here, uh, continuing the trend of a guy like you being the worst part of this movie. Did you notice in the backgrounds just went away? Just <laughs> We yeah. got fucking color gradients yep. in those scenes. It was, this is the only part of this movie that looks cheap. By comparison, do you remember a long time ago when I was talking about Peter Pan, how there's a point where they do background swaps to do very subtle uh, you know, moments of like, oh, wow, you know, you know, Hook's sword biting into the mask, right? I don't remember this discussion. Yeah, so in Peter Pan, they have a fight scene that takes place over two backgrounds that are almost identical, except one has damage on the mask and one doesn't. Ah. So when Hook swings a sword, they shake the animation and then they change the background so it has this wonderful effect ah. of looking like he smashes the section out of it. So, so they didn't have to draw the entire mast on the cell in a way that would stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, that's just really lovely work. And in this movie, the sequence where Frollo is talking about the bugs under the rock of the cathedral, <laughs> that's not one background. That's four backgrounds. Because there's the background with the, with the stone plate, there's him take. There's the background without the stone plate. There's the background with the stone plate put back. And when they animated the stone plate coming down onto the bugs, uh, there's another one there as well. Yeah, they drew the other plates on the cell, so you wouldn't have just one that completely stood out. Yeah, and like this is not technically remarkable. What it is is indicative of effort. You can do that sequence easier and cheaper, and it will look fine. The only reason to do it the way that they did it is to make it look amazing. <laughs> it will look fine by anyone's standards except Disney Renaissance. Yeah. <laughs> um, which does bring me to... It doesn't look cheap, but it's it's very of it. This should have been in the of its time. Uh, but were you looking at the crowds very much? I've been told the CGI and the crowds uh, shows its age. I didn't notice. It's... It's decently well hidden. I only notice it because I've seen this movie that many times and it sticks out to me. Mm. But you get some, like, very slow looping animations and whatnot. I imagine It'll be concealed by, like, the first row of background characters they've drawn in and then behind them will be the CG crowd characters. Um, But as soon as you're looking for it, you kind of see it, which is a bummer. It's the only bit of this that doesn't age spectacularly. It does bring to mind the whole like, YouTube reaction zoom in on this scene. Oh, I hope someone could fight for yeah. that. Kind of feel yeah. of, like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't fucking matter. It really doesn't matter. It, like I said, I've seen this so many times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, if you do notice it and it does bug you, I'm sorry, that's that's a problem. Uh, but I don't think that that's a universal experience. There's only one part where I find it jarring, and that's the... Uh, during the uh, Topsy Turvy song number. Oh. You get a scene of a crowd in the background and people like actors, jugglers, acrobats whatnot, crossing back and forth in front of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's just a couple of beats after the last one goes across where there's nothing. And that's when suddenly you can see the characters who are in the background because you're not being distracted. 
and it's not too distant a shot either, so it's very obvious that they are lineless, computer-animated, floaty weirdos. But there's just, I mean, that's the worst of it. And the rest of What it brings to the film the rest of the time, like being able to do the the square scene uh, in Sanctuary at all, with, with just that sense of, of the crowd. Uh, and and that sense of volume is you know it's worth it. It's totally worth it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And no one else could do it at the scope that they were doing it. <clears throat> so the fact that they needed CGI to get to those points, yeah, yeah, like oh okay, <clears throat> this technology that's reasonably recent uh, and is incidentally still being hacked together. <laughs> oh yeah, this this software was called Crowd, and it was hot shit at the time. They were really proud of it. The, the reason I know about it is because they discussed it in the, like, you know, the Disney magazine and stuff. Yeah. I was full on into it this point. It just, it just reminds me of people showing scenes of two archers being reasonably similar seven seconds apart in Lord of the Rings. of like, okay, cool. <laughs> I didn't notice, and yeah. I don't care. Um, there is one part of the soundtrack which I won't really complain about. It's just kind of a bummer. Because there's a missing motif in here. Or rather, the motif is still there, but the song that tells us what it is got cut. Or rather, got changed. Okay, so the story is that um, God Help the Outcasts yep. was originally Sunday. The song which you hear in the end credits as an R&B pop cover. Because it's still 90s Disney, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to have a 90s R&B pop cover. you got to pay the bills. In fact, there were two. Because the one that plays on this version is a boy band uh-huh. uh, that I'm not familiar with. And the one that we got was Eternal, a uh, black girl band. Um, it, you, you can probably guess from that, like, 90s black girl band R&B uh, pop cover. You can probably guess how uh, dramatic vocal acrobatics this song landed. Anyway. <clears throat> yeah, I'm just nodding along. <laughs> Take me on a story. <laughs> The the reason I bring this up is because the melody of Sunday and specifically the intro of it plays in a bunch of parts in the soundtrack because it was originally connected to that song. Uh, you hear it in the bell tower sequence. You hear it. Uh, is it at the end? Anyway, it it shows up in different places because it it represents that. Uh, part of the story and with the song missing that's kind of weirdly disconnected but at least in one of those instances it does immediately lead into uh, a motif from, from God Help the Outcast so you sort of get this well, uh, the, <laughs> speaking of motifs something I love about the soundtrack is that there is a love theme which is the, the Heaven's Light mm-hmm. uh, lead in music and that appears a bunch of times too uh, my favorite bit is that it appears right at the end when Pussy is like, okay, I have to be okay with her not being into And they play the same piece of music that's like, yeah, this is his romance theme. So, like, just, that's just, you know, effortlessly beautiful way to show that he's okay with this now and he's gotten over it. <laughs> it's, once again, it's not complicated, <laughs> but it is the right thing to do. It's very straightforward. And... So there's a quote from Mencken, which is, if the song can be taken out, you haven't done your job. If you didn't have that stuff in the soundtrack to cover that, 
<laughs> you would have to replace it with text and dialogue, and that creates layers of ambiguity that the music doesn't. Isn't it almost like the other way around? Like, you you create an overdetermined feel if you have to be explicit about this stuff in text? Possibly. I don't know. I may be taking the wrong meaning from what you're saying. Yeah. Anyway, I'm just at this point carrying on about things I love about a movie that I love, so... Eh. Shall we swing open our arms wide and take in every last squalling thing that wishes to be here in the name of whatever land? Uh, nothing I want to do more. I have three notes. Okay, let's see how quickly I can get through these. <laughs> this movie's establishing scene is elegant as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Like... You get Kopan Song, then you get 30 seconds that could explain Quasimodo completely and utterly yep. from his own point of view, and that will be like the central idea of the brilliant. Mwah! Fucking love it. A plus no notes. <laughs> uh, that's just my enhanced bisexuality note. Uh, do you, oh, oh! All horses are dogs! Yep, all horses are dogs. Achilles is a dog, and you have taken one of my notes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that's okay! Does it help if Jolly's also a dog? Because Jolly's extremely a dog. Jolly is a dog, yeah. Achilles is, I mean, with Achilles it's very explicit. He he literally sits and feels, and obviously his name exists for no purpose other than to make that pun. Yep. Because this movie is thick with jokes. It's kind of funny, because it's yep. not a comedy film in any sense. Oh well, anyway, do you know the name of Frollo's horse? No. Frollo's horse is officially named Snowball. No. Well, fair enough. <laughs> I just bring it up because it's cute. Akab. Oh, extremely. Yes, I I always enjoyed the, the the. I mean, the crowd is obviously just we'll go with whatever, but it's always the cops who start some shit in this world. Yeah. I wonder if we can learn anything from this. Yeah. Um, I was like that. Phoebus's shoulder pads vanish completely. Look forward. Like the shape of them just goes. Whoop. Yeah, they're like Murphy Brown um shoulder pads. <laughs> I don't think Murphy Brown's shoulder pads ever go away. <laughs> uh, I love that when Clopin cozies up to Frollo uh, during Topsy Turvy and Frollo like disdainfully brushes himself off afterwards, brushes off confetti that clearly wasn't yep. there before. Yep, because Clopin's the best. <laughs> little delightful things like that is what makes me adore this movie. If you ever look at Achilles... In a scene where he's around Snowball, he's giving him the stink eye. Achilles <laughs> hates Snowball. <laughs> well, because Achilles knows that Akab. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, oh, there we go. That's one that has a little bit of meat on the bone. Uh, there were some cut scenes from this in the version that we got. Because they wanted the Australian release to come in under a G rating. Even if it did have that, some scenes may be unsuitable for small children warning on it. Hellfire? Very specific parts of Hellfire. Yeah, Hellfire so, getting, a, like, sections of the audio cut, so it kind of stutters at one point. The first time uh, he sees the vision of Esmeralda dancing in the flame, mm. it's, you only get the very first flicker of that. There's about a second of it, and then she fades away again. It goes on for much longer in this version, yes. and it's a lot more sexy feeling herself up in this version. Yes. Um, and also, it cuts immediately after... Uh, made the devil so much stronger than a man. Like, they build up to that, and then they just hard cut to the, the knock on the door. Yep. Uh, which makes the trouble with the fireplace line make so little sense. Uh, I mean, it works. It's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, no, it, it works either way. He still interacts with the fireplace, but 
what you're supposed to take from it is that he fell asleep on the floor because he collapses at the end of the song. Mm. He's utterly drained, uh, and and he's been there all night. Which <laughs> you work this out from context in the next line, but in this case, he just you know he's just mad, and then he does the if I have to burn down all Paris line, and then you cut to the next scene. Yeah. The other bit that got cut is. Uh, in the cathedral, uh, when Follow uh, grabs Elsmeralda and, and sniffs her hair, yeah, they noticeably cut before he sniffs her hair and strokes her neck, and she tells him she knows exactly what he's thinking about. Uh, and they skip straight to you chosen a magnificent prison. Like we get, uh, don't do well inside stone walls. Then he's, and that's the. That's the really jarring jump cut, because that's like, hang on, he was right next to her a second ago, and now he's way over there. <laughs> that line of action's changed in a weird way. And that bit, I believe, was in the original theatrical version, because that's the bit where I was like, wasn't there some shit? I feel like something's missing here. And I didn't know for years, because, yeah, yeah, they cut out the, the most overt sexual assault. Boy, this movie was bold. <laughs> really bold. I... I mean, I get why people are so weirded out by it. It's, it's not a very Disney movie. Yeah. Oh, fuck. It was the Disney movie that grew up with me. It's basically what happened. Like, this is... <laughs> the 90s felt like it was aligned perfectly to my age. This was the, the capstone where I was like, we're treating you like a fucking adult. There's, there's a kind of a faux tension there as well, where, like, we have had Disney movies which featured, like, domestic assault. Yeah, but it was hilarious. My my point is that like different times, different climes, different like they were there is a you know, you wouldn't expect to see that in a Disney movie. We've had that almost every season of something like, <laughs> Wow, yikes, I wouldn't have expected that. I'm like, well yeah, because Disney Disney projects this image of being a timeless cultural component that has like moved in a steady, graceful manner all throughout history. And you're gonna find, especially with this movie, that actually there's a bunch of times where they tried some stuff that was pretty fucking wild. It's true. It's true. I do think this is very different from the kind of yikesy sexual assault that we've spoken about before in Disney's, because this recognizes what it is. Yeah. In those, it was presented as innocent and or funny, or maybe bad, but not worth getting too upset about. The same thing happened in Oliver and Company, and it was one of our heroes doing it. Oh, God. I forgot about the chihuahua. Hey! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, it's, I mean... It's it's a very mature mm. film, and I don't mean that in an ironic way. Anyway, enough about that. Back to the rapid fire. Phoebus and Esmeralda kiss for like a whole verse <laughs> of Quasimodo's uh, lock motif, which has got to be the longest tongue wrestle in Disney history. It goes on for ages. I kind of love it. Uh, She's a dancer. She's got breath control. <laughs> I mean, if she sung as well, well, she probably, I mean, she can sing, we know that. Um, not a cute little trivia fact, I just wanted to draw attention to the, the moment, the bell tower right near the end when Follow realizes that he's lost control of Cosimodo, and the facial expression acting at that point is just glorious. Yeah. <laughs> this is just this moment of like, oh, yeah, you can rip my fucking head off if I piss you off enough. And I just worked out enough. Mm -hmm. Like I am on a very short precipice, <laughs> and it's very clear to see, um, you know, because even when he's uh, when Cosimodo is holding him off with the dagger, he still looks afraid at that point. And moment of like, no, hang on a minute, I'm going to be angry now, <laughs> and it's a beautiful shift. 
there is really good storytelling. There is an honesty to that moment that very few people will appreciate. Yeah, it's really good. Um, and then I'm going to follow it up with one just kind of disappointing moment. Yeah. Uh, which is at the very, very end when Esmeralda runs over to hug Quasimodo after he's caught, uh, after Phoebus catches him from the fall. By the way, really lovely hug between Quasimodo there, even if Phoebus does do the I'm not gay back. Yeah, well, obviously. How like, else would you I know? Like that as an expression of their character, because Quasi is a feeler and Phoebus is a joker. Yep. He, he, he's definitely, I, I protect myself with sarcasm, like, <laughs> male sincerity, hey, I'm not comfortable with that. Uh, anyway, but then they have Esmeralda run over to hug Quasimodo, and the run is so bad. <laughs> it's like a weird elbows-to-the-side girly run. Which is not like how she's moved at any point through yeah, the movie. <laughs> and the hug is so weak. Like, she doesn't hug. Like, she just sort of... There should be follow through. There should she, be like, momentum. Yeah, she lifts herself up around his shoulders, kind of thing, and it just doesn't have any impact. And I'm like, that's not the hug I wanted to see at that moment. That feels insincere. I can imagine that what happened there, especially because anytime characters are interacting, there's, there's two supervising yeah, directors. Yeah. And I suspect that there's a whole bunch of work that was like, look, we're familiar with how to make two characters run together and hug, except in this case, one of them is two feet shorter than we're used to drawing. What do? <laughs> Yeah, so it's just it's just a bummer. I just wish there had been more impact. I do have a Whateverland point left over after you shotgun through. <gasps> I've got one more, then should I do it first? Go on. I forgot to add it earlier, but uh, the line, I ask for love I can possess, is one of the most incredible lyrics <laughs> I have ever heard. <laughs> Speaking as someone who was uh, questioning faith at the time, just like, holy Fuck that hits home. Yeah. Right? It's a great line. It's a great line. It's a great song. Apex of power. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. And uh, full props to also Bette Midler not uh, using the racial word in her performance of that song. Yeah. Uh, great, great choice. Excellent. Now, I do actually have a whatever land point to throw in here, <gasps> which is the timeline of when this movie is in the real world is a little fuzzy. And now you can go, hey, you shouldn't look at the actual historical dates for this kind of stuff <laughs> because you're just ruining Disney movies. But this is about the actual fucking Cathedral of Notre Dame. And they it's, do apparently give a date at one point. There is a time point of reference, which is that Phoebus identifies the wine uh, under which he is doing his manly hero suffering as a 1470 burgundy. Yes, which means this has to happen after 1470. Now... The timeline the movie script gives is 1482, when Clopin opens it, but then it flashes back 20 years to the start of the story, which means that that gives us a window of time, okay? So sometime from 1462 to 1482. Well, uh, hang on. Clopin's opening number is at the same time that most of the movie takes place. Yes. Only the song is the flashback. Yes. Okay, good. So that gives us a window of time. I've seen people misinterpret that one and, and think that the whole story is being told. Uh, retroactively, which would make no sense since you see the same child at the end. So. The wars that France is involved in that window of time don't neatly line up with anything that's oh. been explicitly stated. And Phoebus does claim he's fought, what, six continents? Yes. That's a lot of continents. And Phoebus is also referred to as a war hero. That's true. Which is complicated because the wars France were involved in at this point were things like the Catalan War of Succession, which you might go, hang on, 
that's not France. And you're right. It's not France. It's the French army being sent out there by the king to go do stuff. And no one coming home from that was a war hero. I mean, I'm going to be honest. Uh, a country starting being involved in war in another country is not, in fact, a surprise to me. That's a good point. But while I did some digging on this, I did think it was worth noting that the closest and most appropriate war where someone could technically be considered to be a war hero in that they went away and fought in the name of the country and returned to the country, and it wasn't like some other king's succession business where that they war asked was to borrow troops. Like good and just, and, and uh, you know, something the country would get behind. Yep is a series of skirmishes within France at the time that was not named until the 1850s, whereupon it received the name The Mad War. Okay. Which was a sequence of different times when different nobles said, no, I'm the king of France, and rallied armies to try and set it up. Right. So, uh. I don't know, obviously it doesn't <laughs> actually matter, but it did get me looking at the French history and go, oh, that's right, wow, these people deserved guillotine <laughs> you suggesting Phoebus might have a regicide on his, uh... That would be dope. <laughs> but what I suspect is, is, that Phoebus is that Phoebus is instead touching on a much... A, a story I hold very dear to my heart, which is, when's the right time to stop supporting a fascist? And the answer is yesterday, and the next best time is right now. <laughs> <laughs> I like that idea too. Well, I mean, that's kind of his entire plot. Yeah! God, everybody has a... The deacon has an arc. Roll has a fantastic villain arc in that, like, he makes it almost the whole way, bless his heart, but extremely not! Also, incidental, like, random church trivia, because then this came up when we talked about the, the title of the Pixies back in the day, uh, Frollo is not addressing the deacon correctly. He does. Nothing. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> he calls him old man. Yeah, that's, that's a sin, Frollo. That's a sin, and you should be in trouble for that. Also, Archdeacon is a really interesting choice to have made instead of what you would normally see an American do in this situation, which is they would normally have an Archbishop in a cathedral, which is to say an Archbishop is technically uh, more of a spiritual leader, like you go to an Archbishop for moral advice, um, whereas, uh, and the step above that is a Cardinal. An Archdeacon is administrative. I was going to guess administrative. Yeah, the Archdeacon is the guy who... For lack of a uh, a better in situ reference, he's the guy who gets the lawns mowed. And in the case of the Archdeacon of Notre Dame, that's someone who's trying to spend the church money to maintain Notre Dame and still not do it at a terrible cost. Which is obviously, you can see some amazing tensions there, and that's very Sort of makes him a great character to put in, since I understand the character book was more concerned the sanctity of Notre Dame as a building. Yeah. Uh, than with any of the characters' comings and goings, which is also just really interesting. And I understand with a very small amount of research that before it burnt down, Notre Dame had an archdeacon. It didn't have an archbishop, uh, like, you know, different... The probably still got one. I doubt the burning down had... Yeah, but, it, but they might not be doing the job right now. They might be busy. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like the job would be really busy right now. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, what about the, uh, the Vespers and the... <laughs> You don't recognize any of that shit? I know you're not Catholic. <laughs> I'm not I'm not Catholic, but it does it does include as much of the iconography of, of Notre Dame as I could actually correctly identify. It was all there. Which, you know, it stands to reason they did want to make sure it was absolutely peerless. They did I notice they did avoid shots of the cathedral that involved the cephalophores, which are statues of saints holding their own decapitated heads. Ah, yeah. Well they've all that um they've all got their heads version. Yeah, because they haven't been 
Well, like, so after the revolution, a whole bunch of kings yeah. got decapitated and then recapitated later when they restored the cathedral. But there are saints oh, statues. There's several ones holding their own heads. Okay. And that's why you have a specific term for them, of cephalophores, which is, no, that saint is meant to be depicted with their head off, holding their ha- head in their hands. And the okay. head has a glow around it, which often means that these, if you make a statue of this, what you wind up making is a fresco where a pair of hands are holding a head and there's an orb around it and then there's some legs and it looks fucking weird. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I mean, let's, uh, I mean, art of masters is always kind of a dicey subject because they, you know, I mean, by definition, you're going to, you're going to dwell on the worst day of their life. Yeah. Well, what is Christianity about in the end? Oh, God, you're reminding me that I should have done like a shotgun round for words that this movie taught me. <laughs> so we'll just go quick, I guess. Calumny and consternation. Uh, uh, contrition. <laughs> sanctuary? Not sanctuary. I was 13. I already knew what that was. And it did not teach me strumpet because we studied Shakespeare in school before this point. Nice. So I already knew what a strumpet was. So, kind of surprised to hear it pop up. In, um, yeah, yeah, that'll do me for now. But uh, God, uh, especially the delivery of those lines, TJ, will yeah. stick in your head. Liquid gold. So uh, with that, yes. with that lesson learned, how about we go to the lesson we're never learning, which is <laughs> capitalism. All capitalism, also bastards. So, what do you think about the budget of this movie? This is the one I've been waiting for. I keep saying, "Oh, hang on, this was the one." No, this was the one. This is the one that broke a hundred million dollars on the budget. To my surprise, no. No? I also thought that was the case. What? Yeah, um, don't get me wrong. I swear I've read this Wikipedia page. So, Hunchback was a victim of misinformation. Hunchback's budget was 70 million, which means 15 more than Pocahontas. And to you and I, what's the follow-on thought, which is that at last check it was the first failure, right? Well, no, it wasn't a commercial failure. It just failed to accelerate at the rate they wanted yes. after the Lion King. Like, they went Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King. So they were high on their arms by then. Yeah. And they just, like, they were expecting Pocahontas and Hunchback to continue that trajectory, and they didn't. And you can't toke on rocket fuel all the time. No. It is by no means unsuccessful, but it didn't give them what they wanted especially for such a... High concept is the wrong word, but for such a loft concept, let's say that. The movie did make $325 million. Yeah, see, that's nobody's failure. That is down from Pocahontas, and that's where you're correct with that whole deceleration. They yeah. spent a bit more, they got a little less, and the fact that the amount they got back is astronomically large <laughs> is the kind of thing that people still nonetheless talk about in negative ways. And that was the same story for Pocahontas, right? Because you don't make as much as The Lion King. Yep. You just don't. No. And it turns out the Lion King was surprisingly cheap. Yeah. I mean, by standards. Tertiarily to that, we were at the time told Hunchback failed. Hunchback did badly. And it turns out that's thanks to proactive misinformation. <laughs> fair, I was never told. Oh, well, fair enough. You got told differently than I did. I did, yeah. Well, I mean, that was the narrative, right? People decided it was a failure because it was ambitious. It- <laughs> It weren't no fun time like The Lion King. So there's one fork of the criticism, which was unfortunately spearheaded by someone in the fucking movie. Damn, whose fault is this? Jason Alexander said in an interview that he wouldn't take his child to watch it. Fuck him. (laughs) I mean, that depends entirely on the child, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I wouldn't take my six-year-old to watch this. Four? Yeah. Well, that's just good parenting, then. You wouldn't show this movie to a four-year-old. Yeah. Whereas his stance was that, like, Disney movies are meant to be showable to four-year-olds. 
That's a stupid stance. Well, yes. He, what does he know about anything? Now, what's that? What's that? Oh, it's the Christian evangelical movement's music. <laughs> now, see, this is how you know they didn't really soften the blow. Uh, based on making Frollo not a priest anymore, because I bet they still pissed off the evangelical one completely. The Southern Baptist Convention advocated for a boycott from what it claimed at the time was 16 million strong follow fellowship, and demanded that its followers boycott this movie. A month after it had already been screened. <laughs> now that they won't particularly notice or care, definitely don't go and see this movie. No? No? Because that's when Disney announced that they were holding lesbian and gay days at the Disneyland Oh, so it had parks. nothing to do with the movie. It had <laughs> nothing to do with the movie. Piece of shit movement. They were angry about the Disney World decision. They saw it as a degeneration of culture. And they tried to do a big kick of a stink boycott this movie that's already been out for a month and is probably winding down at that point after having made hundreds of millions of dollars. But that then led to a lot of backfilling of claiming of like they you know, we've been we've been down on this movie for ages because look at how bad it is, look at these yeah. themes. And Demi Moore, who plays Esmeralda, she just did a movie called Striptease, and is that appropriate? And that's how I learned about the movie Striptease as a child. Ah. This would also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, very shortly before Kevin Klein did uh, Birdcage. Uh, or In and Out. I can't remember which one. Or In and Out, yeah. No, Birdcage. Can't Kevin remember. Don't, don't know. Ah. Not going to look it up. <laughs> anyway, Kevin Klein did some gay movies. Mm -hmm. uh, and here's the other thing that was unknown to Disney at the time. There was a gay rights pressure group which advocated for amongst other things, labor laws allowing gay people to openly identify without fear of being punished at work. Seems cool. Their name was Out There. Oh. Ah. This was seen as the wow. same backfilling explanation. Oh my god. Imagine thinking that that's related in any way. And this is why I say Disney takes some weird steps. They tried a lot of stuff. The The parks having gay days. If that had gone badly, they probably would have dropped it. Like, there's nothing to say that no, they... Yeah, I mean, he wants to make money. Yeah. They are absolutely as in favor of gay rights as they think will make them the most money at any given time. And therefore, you have this weird and wonderful story of one of the ten most profitable animated films <laughs> of all time. <laughs> being claimed to be a failure and the mm, bad one yeah. in its lineup, despite the movie absolutely whipping ass, and it's an unfaithful adaptation of the novel that you didn't read either, fuckface. Fucking river. I really wanted to see the version where everyone dies and is sad forever. How many of these movies have we covered where the thing of, like, well, I saw this movie when I was a child, what about you, Talon? I read the book, and how many times have I ever been satisfied with how they carry through <laughs> on the promises of the book. Never fucking happens. I could not give a fuck about uh, uh, book faithfulness, except in as much as it diminishes the source material, right? Like, I was down on Black Cauldron because there was a bunch of good shit in the books that they failed yeah. to live up to. Yeah. It's not because it's inaccurate for the sake of it being inaccurate. I don't care whether you have the secondary prig character sacrifice himself or you have Gurgi set. Actually, no, I that it was a better choice to use Gurgi for that in the in the movie that compiled these things into one. It's a bunch of other shit that I would have liked to be good as well. Same thing with the Sword and the Stone. They correctly determined that thousands of stories about Arthur aren't usable. You had to cook it down. 
to the best version of the story you can make. And it turns out that while that's a good a good idea, the person doing it wasn't very good, and what you got was a movie that sucks. But the impulse is a good one. Same thing with Pocahontas, the version of the story where all the white people are horrible bastards who uh, build a society on the backs of mistreating... Oh no, that one was a real story. Yeah. yeah. Oh no! Oh no. So, ultimately, this does mark a somewhat sad point in the Disney animated cannonball, which is, this movie is so good, it's going to be a little awkward to watch the next one. In a way, though, I'm kind of bored to to hear on out, because, like, it gets bad and weird. Well, let let me clarify. When we say gets bad, like, Mulan's coming up, and Mulan is... Like, yeah. sure, there are ways Mulan could be a better movie, but Mulan kicks ass. There's still some high points coming in. Yeah. We've still got Mulan, we've still got Lilo and Stitch, we've still got uh, Princess and the Frog, we've still got some genuinely great movies. Um, we ha- we also have some interestingly bad movies. Yes, but th- that's what I'm talking about. Like, I look forward more to to talking about shit like fucking Tarzan and Brother Bear and, God forbid, eventually Home on the Range. <laughs> That was. I had to burp anyway. That wasn't it. The movie physically causing me reflux because <laughs> of its awfulness. Uh, but yeah. So like in in a way, I'm sad because I'll never be this happy to watch a movie uh, in in this series again. But it'll probably be more interesting from here on out because this episode has been fifty minutes of me fly. crapping on about how much I adore this movie. Yep. Uh, and and I'm sure if you came here to gain any sort of critical insight. Or to talk about weird shit that you maybe didn't know about this movie that you are leaving empty and unfulfilled. Uh, <laughs> for which I apologize. We- we've been really gentle on this movie built around the slur. <laughs> hey, we talked about that at the beginning. Alright, so, so what's up next week, Fox? <laughs> oh, it-, it gets weird and it gets bad. Did, did you just make a puppet of me? I well, you weren't doing it. Well, what's up next, Fox? <laughs> Oh, it gets weird, and it gets bad. You've said that already! I, I thought you were replacing it. Damn it, I can't please you. Union rules! Hey, what if my hand puppet's in a union as well? that That's the union. The puppet and I are in the union. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so we collectively negotiate to not have to watch Hercules? Uh, I'm afraid that's a non-starter. We did commit to certain basic tenets of the yep. world, to exactly one certain basic tenet of this podcast. Yeah. 